Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome back. Let's open our Bibles, please, to the next of the songs for the journey we're looking at, which is Psalm 122. Psalm 122. As I've been going around the camp this week, I'm glad to hear that you're all gaining an Irish accent, uh, learning how to say this uh, book of the Bible properly. Keep it up. It's good. Psalm 122, let's read together the word of the living God. A song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David." Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls. Prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say, peace be within you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Amen. This is the Word of God. May He be pleased to write its truth upon our hearts this morning. Well, boys and girls, I want to begin with some opening remarks for you guys before you go off to your classes. And I want us to um, do a little bit of review. Uh, This week, we are thinking about these songs for the journey The Songs of Ascents, Psalms 120 to 134, that are about our journey through life as Christians. We're traveling on the road to heaven. We saw on Monday that they are a kind of playlist for the journey. God has written these special songs for Christians to sing as they go through life. And the first one we looked at yesterday, Psalm 120, uh, spoke to us about the challenges that we face on this road to heaven, on the journey. Uh, You remember we talked about homesickness, homesickness. We saw how God put Christians into this world, but we really look forward to being at home with God in heaven. And in the meantime, we all face challenges. The way the world speaks is very different from the way God has called us to speak as Christians. And the way the world acts is very different from the way God has called us to act and to behave as his special people. So we have been called to live 
and to be light in the darkness of the world. And sometimes uh, we saw that is really, really hard. Well, today's song for the journey that we've just read is Psalm 122. And it's a song about the church. And you remember from the opening evening that the church is like the vehicle that God has given us in which we travel to our destination. And in this vehicle, he has put three very important things that we all need as Christians for our journey. First of all, at church, we have the Bible preached to us which teaches us about Jesus and how we can have our sins forgiven and how we can live in such a way as to please God. Then secondly, at church, in this vehicle, we have the sacraments. And that's, of course, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And these are special pictures that God has given to us as his people that show us his love to us in sending Jesus to die for our sins. Signs that bring us into his family and that feed us along the road. And then thirdly, at church, we have the elders. And these are special men that God has set aside that make sure that we are fed by the word, and who make sure that we are kept safe and protected from our enemies. So boys and girls, it's great to be part of the church. It's great to be in this vehicle that God has given us to get us to our destination. And the psalmist in Psalm 122, which was King David, He wrote this song so that we can tell God that. That we can tell God as we sing this psalm, God, we are so glad to be part of your church. That's a special gift, boys and girls, that God has given to you. And I'm sure you have many friends, other boys and girls, and they don't go to church. Some of them maybe have never been to church. And it's your privilege, of course, to invite them, to invite them to come, come into the vehicle and come with us on the journey. It's a blessing to be part of the church. Now, this psalm has two questions for you boys and girls and for the grown-ups here as well that I really want you to think about this morning as you go to class. The first question I want you to ask is this, am I happy to go to church? Am I happy to go to church? David says here, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Now let me ask you boys and girls, how do you feel on Sunday morning when mom and dad say, time for church? Uh, Or how do you feel When mom and dad come and say to you, it's time for family worship. Does that make you happy? Are you happy to go to church? Are you happy to gather for family worship? Or do you groan? Oh, no. Do you drag your feet? Do you grumble? 
Now, I'll bet that there are some things in your life that you do get really, really excited about. We all have those things. And some of those things maybe don't excite other people the way they excite you. Let me give you an example. Something that I get very excited about uh, is uh, old airplanes. Okay, that's just a hobby of mine. I know it wasn't in the brochure, but the speaker this year is a nerd. Okay, sorry, I'm a history professor, it comes with the job. But I'm really interested in old airplanes. Now, not everybody else in my family, believe it or not, shares my excitement about old airplanes. Uh, I won't mention any names. Uh, I don't want to identify uh, or embarrass them in front of everybody. But uh, at least four male members of my family uh, do share my excitement. And two female members, well, not so much. Now, two weeks ago, uh, we went uh, as a family on a trip to Washington, D.C. And I really wanted to visit the National Air and Space Museum uh, in Virginia. It has over 200 old airplanes. Isn't that awesome, right? And I was very excited. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the airplane museum. (laughs) Now, the two unnamed female members of the family, uh, they went along for the ride. And they were, well, they were very patient. They were very patient. And uh, they listened to my enthusiastic blabbering uh, about barnstorming biplanes uh, and American flying boats and German World War II night fighters and on and on it went. Now, they weren't opposed to going. They, they were glad uh, to see the boys having so much fun. But they didn't share my excitement. They didn't. I don't know why, but they didn't share my excitement. And, of course, it's simply because they take greater delight in other pursuits. And I should just say uh, the roles were reversed when the male members of the family uh, were taken to see French Impressionist paintings in the Smithsonian's National Gallery of Art uh, later that afternoon. But that's, that's another story. Now, boys and girls, here's the point. Jesus says to us, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also In other words, you will only be really excited about something if your heart takes delight in it. If you don't love church, maybe it's because you need to love Jesus more. Now, of course, God knows that sometimes we're we're very tired. Uh, When we go to church, maybe you've been sick Uh, God understands that it's a lot of hard work and and to concentrate in worship. Uh, Sometimes maybe the sermon is is a little difficult to understand. And there's lots of distractions, of course, when you go to church as well. But if you love Jesus, then you will ask him to help you love church more. Because that's where he has promised to meet with you every day single week. So ask him to help you say, like King David, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. That's the first question I want you to think about today. Am I happy to go to church? 
And the second question, very briefly, and it follows on from that question, is this. Am I happy to serve at church? Am I happy to serve at church? Because King David loved the church so much, he promised in this psalm to pray for the church. We read that in verses 6 and 7. And he also decided that he would seek the good of the church. You see that in verse 8. And boys and girls, these are two things you can do as kids as well. You can pray. You can pray for the needs of the people in your church. Or as we were reminded last night, you can pray for the missionaries that the church has sent out. And you can also do practical things to seek the church's good. Boys and girls, you are not too young. You are not too young to serve in the church. Now, unfortunately, lots of people go to church, but they're not really willing to serve. And I want to close by telling you a story about four people I know. Uh, And they're lovely Christian people. Uh, They have nice families. They love Jesus. Uh, And they're all members of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. And I am going to give you their names. Okay? They're kind of funny names, actually. Their names are Everybody, Somebody, Anybody, and Nobody. One day, the pastor of their church asked for volunteers. Uh, to be greeters at church, okay? So that's not too difficult. Stand at the door, welcome people, give them a bulletin, shake their hand, it's good to see you at church. Anybody could have done it. But in the end, nobody did it. And then there was a need for people to serve on some committees. There was a social committee to organize fellowship events, an evangelism committee to invite people to church, Now, everybody was sure that somebody was going to do it. But nobody realized that somebody wasn't really going to do it. So who do you think volunteered for the committees? That's right. Nobody. And then there was a VBS planned for the congregation. Everybody really should have got involved. And the pastor thought that somebody was just sure to volunteer. But even though it was everybody's job, once again, nobody offered to help. So which of my four friends is the most involved in their church? That's right. Nobody. In fact, nobody does a lot of things in our churches. Now, this story is, of course, just a parable All of us here this morning, including you boys and girls sitting in the back, all of us here are called by Jesus to be involved in the life of the church. We all have different gifts. We all have different personalities. We all have different opportunities to serve. But when someone asks us to do something, like maybe help with a VBS or greet people as they come to church or stack the chairs after church lunch. Say hello to that visitor that maybe you don't recognize. 
maybe we say to ourselves, I'll just leave that to somebody else to do. Let me encourage you this morning to say, I can do that. And then go and do it. So, am I happy to be at church? Am I happy to serve at church? These are two good questions to get you thinking as you go to your classes this morning. And with that, you guys can be dismissed. Well, before we continue in our study, I'd invite us all to bow our heads in prayer. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this new day that you have given to us. We give thanks to you, O Lord, for the mercies of the night that has passed, for the refreshing sleep you've given. We want to thank you, O Lord God, for the boys and girls, and we ask your blessing upon them as they go to their classes. We ask that you would fit a particular blessing for them this day, that you would challenge them, O Lord, about their place as baptized members of your church, that they would see, O Lord, that you have called them to serve as well. And we ask, O Lord, that as we turn now to think some more about this 122nd Psalm, we pray that as adults and as young people, we too, Lord, would be challenged by your Holy Spirit to consider who you have called us to be as members of your church. We ask, O Lord, that you would help us, O Lord God, in this time of worship, O God, because as we have just been reminded, we are often distracted by many things. We acknowledge our need of your grace to concentrate, O Lord, and we would pray, Father, for your spirit to be among us to bless. We ask, O Lord, that we would not simply be hearers of the word, but doers of it as well. And we ask this with the pardon of our sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's uh, spend a few minutes in review, shall we? The Songs of Ascent, Psalms 120 to 134, where we're singing through them as well this week, uh, they're kind of like a psalter within the psalter. They were sung by the Old Testament church as they ascended to Jerusalem for the three annual feasts, Passover, Harvest, and tabernacles. So the theme of this psalter within the psalter is pilgrimage. And because that's the theme, they are also to be considered New Testament psalms. All of us here are also on a pilgrimage in our Christian life. I've described them as a kind of playlist for the Christian life with all of its ups and downs. So while the Songs of Ascents were originally uh, talking about a literal geographic pilgrimage from point A to point B, Jerusalem, they picture for us what one writer has called a pilgrimage of the heart. They describe for us the onward, upward progress of your Christian walk towards the heavenly Jerusalem. How do they do that? Well, a number of commentators, I think helpfully, have suggested that this idea of pilgrimage is conveyed by the structure of these 15 psalms, the arrangement of them into five groups of three psalms each, or, or triads if you want a technical term, five groups of three. And each triad, it is suggested, shows a progression 
First, from a situation of distress, to secondly, a daily experience of God's power or protection on the journey, and then thirdly, the arrival at a place of security, sometimes identified with God's house at the end of the pilgrimage. So, for example, take these first three songs, 120, 121, and 122. In our first study, in Psalm 120, you remember the psalmist was in Meshach. He was in the land of Kedar, a place of spiritual darkness. That's where his pilgrimage began. And he was homesick for Jerusalem. And then we sang already uh, Psalm 121. We sometimes call that the traveler's psalm, where the psalmist experiences God's safety on his journey out of Meshach. And now in Psalm 122, the psalmist finally arrives at his destination. And he says, our feet are now standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. And as surely as the Old Testament church had a destination, so do we. In fact, in spiritual terms, it's, it's exactly the same destination. We live a life of warfare here, but we look to the life of peace and triumph in the life to come. Or to put it another way, as members of the church militant on earth, you eagerly anticipate joining the church triumphant in heaven. And that is what today's song for the journey is about. It's a song for the church, and it describes what we are to be as its members. And you'll see in the outline there uh, three considerations uh, for our meditation this morning. First, we want to think about joyful church members in verses 1 and 2. Then we're going to move to informed church members. That's in verses 3 to 5. And then we'll go to active church members, and that's in verses 6 through 9. So joyful church members, informed church members, active church members. Let's begin then with these first couple of verses and think about joyful church members. Let's actually read them again. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Well, let me ask two questions about these joyful church members. First of all, where do church members rejoice? Where do church members rejoice? Well, church members, that is to say those who have trusted in Christ for salvation or members of his body, joined to some branch of the visible church, these people are already citizens of heaven, but they have not yet entered into the full experience of that glory. They presently live in this world as strangers. They live, we often say, in that tension between the already and the not yet. And they do so as members of the so-called church militant. The church still at war in this world. 
And these verses tell us where this church militant is most visible, where it is to be found on earth. It's not just found with the individual Christian foot soldier as he or she goes about their daily Christian life. But rather, it is primarily found within the assembled ranks of the visible church. He says, I was glad when they said to me, singular, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet, plural, have been standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. So each of you as individual Christians have a personal relationship with Christ, but you must also have a corporate relationship with his church. And friends, that's because each local congregation serves as an outpost of the heavenly Jerusalem, assembled weekly to worship her Savior on his day. Friends, each Sabbath day is a mile marker closer to our eternal Sabbath with the King. We put aside the things of this passing world and we tune our hearts and our minds to the worship of heaven. So this psalm applies not only to the future joy of your feet standing in the courts of his house up there in heaven, but the present joy of your feet standing in his courts this morning in a place that has been set apart for worship. Do you understand that this public assembly is part of the Jerusalem that is already? It anticipates the Jerusalem that is not yet. What we have here this morning and what we have when we go to church on Sunday is a foretaste of heaven in an outpost of heaven. And that's why you're glad, or you should be glad, when the elders say to you, like the Old Testament church speaking in verse 1, let's go to the house of the Lord. And, And you shouldn't have to be coerced. Oh, really? Do I really have to do this? You don't give it a second thought. You get to go to church. And as such, you get to show yourselves to be the church. So that's the first question. Where do church members rejoice? In the assembly of God's worshiping people. And then the second question to ask of these joyful church members is, why do church members rejoice? rejoice. Why do church members rejoice? Well, remember again the structure of these songs of ascents in five groups of three. The psalmist has good reason to rejoice that his feet are standing in Jerusalem because you remember from yesterday that's not where his feet had been standing at the beginning of his pilgrimage. If you just look back to the one we were looking at yesterday, Psalm 120, verses 5 and following. Remember what he said? Woe is me that I dwell in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, 
They are for war. You see, back in Psalm 120, his feet were standing in the land of Meshach. That place of spiritual darkness and violence. And he was homesick for Jerusalem. And so in Psalm 121, his feet took him out on the open road, leaving Meshach behind and off in towards the hills of Jerusalem. And God kept those feet from slipping. And now you see this morning, we get to Psalm 122. And at last, his pilgrimage to Jerusalem has been completed. And what does he sing in verse 2? He says, our feet are now standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Notice the transition. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, Psalm 120, verse 5. And now I rejoice because our feet are standing in Jerusalem. Your Christian pilgrimage in mine is from Meshach to Jerusalem. It is from woe to joy. It is from this fleeting world to the eternal heavenly city. And so the church member rejoices because he or she has been brought from darkness to light by the grace of God. You're no longer a citizen of Meshach. You're a citizen of Jerusalem and you're a pilgrim headed for glory. That's marvelous. That should make us rejoice. That should thrill our hearts this morning. That's where we're all going. And if I could say by way of application, since you make this pilgrimage in microcosm every Lord's Day, as you go up to the house of the Lord, which is in your town or city, does that prospect not also fill you with joy? If you're thrilled at the prospect of being in heaven with Christ someday, surely this prospect of going to worship him in preparation for glory, that should fill you with joy as well. And again, I want to speak to you young people here. As I asked before, how do you feel when mom and dad say, get out of bed, it's time for church? Really? Five more minutes. Is that how you respond? And I have to ask the same to the adults here. How do you respond When the elders summon you to worship, let us go into the house of the Lord. Are you glad or do you groan? Does your heart leap at the prospect of meeting with Jesus? Or is it a weariness to you? Do you drag your feet? Or is there joy in your heart and a skip in your step? My dad once told me a story of when he was a little child. He was visiting his elderly grandparents in the little village of Brashane in Northern Ireland. And he thinks it was somewhere in the early 1940s, so he must have been very small at the time. And it was Sunday morning, and the family were going to church, and my father was making it very clear that he didn't really want to go to church. And his elderly grandfather said to him, in his thick Ulster Scots accent, "'You didn't want to go to church!' Why ever not? Dad remembers that. And uh, he then related to his stubborn little grandson that when he had been his age, the family had packed a day bag, 
they had walked three miles to church. They spent the whole day at church listening to several sermons before walking all the way home again as the sun was setting. And my dad was a little bit thought that was very strange. Why would you go and spend the whole day at church? It's crazy. Who would do that? Sounded awful to his little boyish mind. Well, later in life uh, as a Christian, uh, my dad remembered his grandfather's story and, and he did the math and he realized that what his grandfather had been describing was the 1859 Ulster Revival that swept through that valley and that little village of Brashane um, was, uh, was, it was remarkable what the Lord did there. Thousands, tens of thousands uh, were converted in a matter of months. The law courts had to close. There, was, there were no cases to hear. It was remarkable what the Lord did. The year of grace, uh, we still call it back home. And the Lord's day services were packed from morning till night. You see, friends, when the Holy Spirit stirs sluggish hearts and when he gives life to dead, spiritually dead hearts. We will not count it too costly to spend even the whole day in the public and private exercises of God's worship. If you recognize that, that's from our catechism, uh, Shorter Catechism 60. And Psalm 122 is a song for church members and for church lovers. And if your heart is not where the psalmist's is or where my great-grandfather's was in 1859, then we need to let this psalm inform our emotions. Let the psalmist's words kindle our cold hearts. Ask the Holy Spirit to bear in you the fruit of the Spirit that is joy. I joyed when to the house of God go up, they said to me. And again, there's this crucial biblical principle here, the one I just shared with the boys and girls. You're only going to rejoice in something that your heart takes delight in. Or as Jesus says, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. It's like me taking my wife and daughter to that museum uh, full of old airplanes. Some of you here are maybe like that when it comes to going to church. You go along with your family each weekend as usual. You're not particularly hostile to the experience. You go along with it. You know, you see your friends there, but it just doesn't have that same appeal. You're indifferent. Maybe even you sit there and you wonder why so many other people get so excited about coming here every week, singing the same old songs, praying, listening to a 40-minute sermon. It's a mystery to you. Why is that? Because you'll only rejoice in something your heart takes delight in. And if you do not rejoice to be at church, it's time for a heart check. Don't leave this conference without doing that heart check. Examine yourself. The question is not whether or not you find the worship service entertaining enough. That's not the question. Others can ask that question. The question is, 
Is your heart enthralled to be with the object of your worship, to be with Christ? If it is, then you will rejoice to go to the house of the Lord. The joy of the church member to be at church on Sunday is only the beginning. Because, of course, it is simply training for heaven. Not that heaven is going to be one interminable Sunday morning worship service. But let me tell you this. If you can't rejoice here now in worship, you're not going to like heaven very much. You're not going to rejoice in a place like that. Today we experience the joy of anticipation. Then there will be the joy of consummation. And I think it's striking the words Jesus says he will speak to each church member as their feet cross the threshold of the new Jerusalem. In Matthew 25, 23, he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. And here it is. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's what joyful church members anticipate. But let's move secondly to consider informed church members. Informed church members in verses 3 to 5. Let's read those verses again. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. What we have next in the psalm are several statements about the nature of the church. Many Christians unite with the church but remain comparatively ignorant of exactly what the church is. So the psalmist here calls us to be informed, informed church members. And he calls us to a robust ecclesiology. And we see he makes three observations, very basic observations actually, uh, which all church members need to be aware of. Observation number one, the church has many members. The church has many members. We read that Jerusalem is a city that is compact together where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. Jerusalem is a city with countless inhabitants. There are several different tribes. Each has their own character traits, their own struggles, their own geographic points of origin. And yet, this city is compact together, or as the ESV has it, bound firmly together, all united to serve the same Lord. We sing of the many nations that inhabit her when we sing Psalm 87a, Philistia, Egypt, Babylon, and Tyre together share, along with Ethiopia, that this one was born there. Of Zion it will be declared, each one was born in her. Behold, the Most High will himself establish her secure. 
In the church, there is tremendous diversity. Many denominations in the visible church. But where Christ is truly present in them, there is also this unity in diversity, just as the many members of the body make up the whole. So Paul says in Ephesians 2.19 and following, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That's the church. Many members. Many members. But there's another observation here. The church has the means of grace. The church has the means of grace. That is where you will find them. Verse 4 reads, To the testimony of Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Now I want you to notice here that there's really two things God's people do when they get to Jerusalem. Now the second one's easy. Uh, So we'll take that one first. They give thanks to the Lord, right? That's easy enough. They give thanks to him. Jerusalem was the location of the house of the Lord. That was the temple or the tabernacle in David's day. There, you remember, was the altar of sacrifice that spoke of the forgiveness of their sins. And you worship God, of course, week by week because you have a great salvation to thank him for in the sacrifice of Christ. And we recall that sacrifice as we come to his table. But the first thing's a little trickier. The New King James Version that I'm reading from here uh, reads, To the testimony of Israel. To the testimony of Israel. Now, you may know if you have a different translation. There's a different, there's a translation question uh, over this word testimony. Uh, so if you have an ESV uh, this morning, it reads, as was decreed for Israel. Okay, so the word testimony is translated a decree. God decreed that God's people do this. Or if you have an NASB, uh, an ordinance for Israel. As if the word were a reference to God's commandment that they take on this pilgrimage itself. Now that's certainly true. God did decree this. God did command us to go into his house to worship him. But I want to submit this morning that this Hebrew word, the testimony, isn't really referring to the command to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But rather that it's referring to something they will find When they get there, the tribes go up to the testimony of Israel. To the testimony of Israel. The word refers to the law of Israel, the testimonies of God, the law of Israel. You remember it was contained within the Ark of the Testimony. That's what they're going up to. They're going up to this testimony. And remember, of course, the testimony of God in today's parlance simply means the word of God. 
It is the testimony of Israel, or or perhaps better, the testimony for Israel. It is the word of God conveyed to Israel. It is God speaking to Israel. Do you want to hear the testimonies of God? Do you want to hear the word of God? You want to hear God speak to you? Go to church. Go to the testimony of Israel. And that's why the tribes have come. They've gone to the testimony of Israel and to give thanks to the Lord. Martin Luther, in his commentary, summarizes it this way. These two mean nothing else that in Jerusalem was the appointed place where the word was to be taught and prayer to be offered. So to summarize, what does this mean? Why do you go up to Jerusalem every Lord's day? Is it not to hear his word taught to you? Is it not to worship him, to sing praises to him, to thank him for his gospel? We call these aspects of worship the means of grace. The word and the sacraments and prayer, as our catechism says, these are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of Redemption, And notice that these means of grace have only been entrusted to the church. This is the vehicle God has given us to get us to our destination. It's not, is it not worth the trouble of getting up on Sunday morning? And let me just say, coming back again in Sunday evening to hear the very word of God. To get another chance again to sing his praises in the very place where he has promised a particular blessing in the assembly of his people in the gates. So what do we learn about the church? We learn it as many members. And we learn that it is here that we have the sacred deposit of the means of grace. And the third observation that David makes is that the church has a king. The church has a king. It's interesting what he says in verse 5. It might not be what you would have expected to hear. He says, For thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. What's this talking about? Well, not only was Jerusalem the place where the people benefited from the prophetic office, the testimony of Israel taught by the elders. And not only was it a place where the priestly office was found, the sacrifices of the temple, it was also the scene of the kingly office. Verse 5 speaks of thrones for judgment. And the gates of Jerusalem, you recall, were the place where disputes would be heard. This was the place where justice was administered by the elders of Israel. So while the Old Testament elders had a teaching office, they also had a ruling office. And while they had a real authority and their verdicts were to be obeyed by the people, it was nevertheless a derived authority. These elders were accountable to and subordinate to The king sitting on the throne of David, who also, of course, was enthroned in Jerusalem. It was the royal capital. Now, you see where I'm going with this. The same thing is true 
of the New Testament church. Christ is the king sitting on David's throne, ruling over his house, the church. And just as the Old Testament pilgrim knew that his just cause would be upheld in the gates, even so the Christian knows that Christ sits in court in his house, the church, governing through his teaching elders and ruling elders who exercise church discipline with a derived authority from him. Friends, the church has many members and the church has means of grace. The church has a king. And church discipline is part of what it is to be a member of the church, to know that our just cause will be heard. So informed church members then need to be conversant with these truths about the nature of the church. As the reformers reminded us, a true church is identified by the faithful preaching of the word of God, the faithful administration of the sacraments, and faithful church discipline. And these truths are not simply for for information only, right? These aren't simply things you do when you have an information class. You join a church, you go for a little four-week class. Okay, I got it. I know what the church is, and then you can kind of forget about it. No, it's not just to inform your head because the flow of the psalm is clear. You have joyful church members who are informed church members. These glorious truths are what inform their joy. We we need to be happy Presbyterians, right? That's, That's a term Barry York likes to give at the seminary. We're happy Presbyterians. We're thankful to be members of the church. We know our ecclesiology, and it's a good thing. It's not simply something you go to seminary and fill your head with. It's something that informs us as church members. And if you understand what the church is, you won't simply be joyful church members and informed church members, but you will thirdly and finally be active church members. Active church members. The psalm began with an individual believer rejoicing at joining his fellow pilgrims going up to Jerusalem. And then he described the the corporate nature of the church in its members, its means of grace, and its government, verses 3 and 4. But in this final section, we see the individual believer again who now makes a personal commitment to be active in the church. And this is really the practical application of the whole this morning. That church members don't just come to church for a joyful emotional fix or perhaps because they're a little more intellectual and they like to be informed about theology and doctrine and they come to fill their heads with theology. Church members are also to be actively involved in the life of the church. And the psalmist shows us two ways that we can do that. And I've already kind of stolen my thunder because I told the kids uh, earlier what they are. But you'll see them there in the outline. Diligent prayer and diligent service. First, diligent prayer. You see it there in verses 6 and 7. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls. Prosperity within your 
palaces. Notice this is a command. Uh, This isn't really just an optional extra. You must pray for Jerusalem. Not only the Jerusalem at large, as we were thinking about last night, the church around the world, but praying for your local congregation as well. And if you aren't exactly sure what to pray, he tells you what to pray. He gives you a prayer list here. He says, pray for the peace of the church. Pray for shalom. He's less concerned here with the threats from outside the church. Lots of other songs of a sense deal with those. He's speaking here more with what's going on within her walls. He's talking about the stuff that goes on inside our congregations or within our presbyteries or within our denomination, within her palaces, verse 7. It's really sad to have to say this, but of course it's been true throughout the history of the church. Many churches are at war. Many churches, I'm not talking about the church militant here. I mean at war with themselves. It's a tragedy. Divisions and schisms abound in local congregations and in presbyteries and denominations. It may be doctrinal conflict. It may be interpersonal conflict. It may even be political conflict. Wars over serious things and wars over really, really silly things. But it's war. Remember that was what characterized Meshach? We're talking about Jerusalem here. These things should not be. No doubt you can think of examples. Many Christians sadly have an unhealthy interest in trawling the internet, pursuing the latest church debates or gossip or on blogs or church magazines. It's all out there if you want to read it. And you see, the challenge is this. Will you pursue prayer for these churches as much as you perhaps pursue the latest soundbite about these conflicts? Oh, you see what our brothers are doing over in that part of Napark. You see what those guys over there are doing. And we kind of polish our halos and think we're doing fine. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You cannot pray this prayer for Jerusalem if you don't love Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you, who love you. You can't pray a prayer for peace if you're personally at war with other members of the church. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. And he says, pray also for the prosperity of the church. He says, may they prosper who love you. Prosperity be within your palaces. Now, it's not really a prayer for financial security or numerical growth. It's speaking, first of all, about spiritual prosperity. And again, in the context, he's just shown us what such prosperity looks like. A prosperous church enjoys unity despite the diversity of its members, not strife or selfish ambition. A prosperous church is making diligent and faithful use of those ordinary means of grace, not looking to the man-made gimmicks that many churches employ. And a prosperous church exercises church discipline and doesn't turn a blind eye when the sheep go astray. Is that what you pray for? Is that what you pray for? If not, then, then why not start today? 
Does your church have a directory of members? I'm sure it does. Maybe, it's, maybe you have an app. You know, cool. Maybe you still have an old photocopied one or something. Well, turn that into a prayer list. Don't just look it up when you need to find someone's phone number, okay? You don't need to find the address for that picture. Oh, yeah, we have a directory, don't we? Make the directory a prayer list. Pray for your Jerusalem. Does your church have a regular prayer meeting? These are all good ways to pray for Jerusalem. And note that it is particularly corporate prayer that the psalmist has in view. Brothers and sisters laboring together at the throne of grace for the good of the church, hearing themselves say audibly, Amen, wrestling together like Jacob, not letting go till they get the blessing. When I first came into the RPCNA, it was 23 years ago, almost to the day actually. My experience in these 23 years, the average regular attendance at congregational prayer meetings is somewhere between 5 and 25% of the members. Now, that's not a scientific study. Someone can correct me. I hope you can correct me. But that's generally what I'm speaking and. Let me get a few nods from some pastors, perhaps, okay? But this is what I've experienced. I find that shocking. We should be shocked. I, I sometimes look back at our, our, our forefathers, previous generations of covenanters, you know, shivering in the hills, being hunted down by the dragoons. If, if they could see statistics like that, they'd probably wonder if we'd apostatize. We cannot expect to see our little Jerusalem prosper until we start taking seriously praying together for Jerusalem. You do not have because you do not ask. How can we possibly expect unity in our churches, faithfulness, growth, blessing, healing from past hurts, if we take these things for granted and don't ask for them as those who deserve none of them. Let us be a praying people in the RPCNA. Let it be said of our little denomination, those people know how to pray. I don't hear that very often. I hear that of the Baptists. I hear that of the Pentecostals. I hear that of all kinds of people. I don't hear that oftenly said. Those covenanters, you should go to a covenanter prayer meeting. Wow. I don't hear that. That's sad. That's sad. May they prosper who love you. Church members love the church, and that love fuels their prayers for the church. Listen to this quote from Thomas Boston. He says, The nearer relation any of us have to Christ, the more should be our concern for the peace of Jerusalem. Shall we not pour out a prayer for that for which Christ poured out his blood? Active church members practice diligent prayer, but they also, of course, perform diligent service. And that's the last two verses. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I'll now say, peace be within you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. 
Active church members do more than pray for the church. They are actively involved in the church. And if you sincerely love your brethren and companions, you'll do more than just pray for them. You'll do more than just say to them, peace be within you. You will, according to verse 9, actively seek their good. It's not just a passing, I wish you well. It's a lively rolling up of the sleeves and getting the hands dirty, seeking of good. Some of you are in a stage of life that may provide more opportunity for this than others. But seeking the good of God's house will generally mean more than simply a one hour a week commitment on Sunday morning. It just will. Peacemakers don't just pray for peace. They work for peace. What can you do to encourage the spiritual well-being of your brothers and companions in your church and beyond? Perhaps encourage them in their walk with God. Offer someone a ride to church or to the prayer meeting. Be a greeter on the Lord's Day. Welcome any visitors. Invite someone home for a meal. Study the Bible with a new believer. Volunteer for Sunday school class. Serve at a VBS. Write someone a note. Gently confront someone who's straying from the faith. There's a long list of things. But don't be the person I talked about earlier called nobody. Oh, somebody's going to do that. Probably not. Probably not. Don't be that nobody. The key thing is to seek their good and not just your own If you're a member of the RP Church this morning, you have taken this vow. Here it is. Do you recognize your responsibility to work with others in the church? And do you promise to support and encourage them in their service to the Lord? This psalm is a favorite for many of us. I love Psalm 122. I couldn't go through the songs of a sense and not do this one, right? But it packs a punch. It's convicting. It's a song for the church, for joyful church members, informed church members, and active church members. And it shows you the church member's heart. He is joyful. He rejoices to be in God's house. He sees it as a foretaste of heaven and the climax of his pilgrimage. And it shows you the church member's Head. He is informed. He understands the doctrine of the church. He's eager to grow in grace and knowledge. And it shows you the church members' hands. He is active. He serves the church in practical ways, seeking opportunities to do good to his brothers and companions. Heart, head, and hands. May they all be engaged, and so may there be peace within our walls. Amen. Let's unite our hearts again in prayer. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we confess before your word that so very often we do not have that passionate love for your church the bride for whom Christ died and poured out his blood. And yet so often we do not pour out prayers for her. 
We confess the coldness of our hearts today, and we would repent of that. And we would ask you, Lord, to give us a greater love for Christ and for his church. We ask that you would help us to be more informed about our ecclesiology, that we'd know what it is to be happy Presbyterians, to rejoice, O Lord, in the means of grace, to rejoice in the word that is preached and the sacraments and the discipline of the church as well. We are so thankful, O Lord, that you have set apart men to the office of elder. And Lord God, we confess also that so often we have not been active church members. We acknowledge that we have often said to ourselves that somebody else can do that. Lord, help us, we pray, to consider the gifts you've given, the opportunities that you've given us, and help us all, O Lord, to be more active in our local churches. Lord, would you hear our prayers? We thank you, O Lord God, that your word comes to us with conviction, but Lord, it is a gracious word. Lord, we are family, and we acknowledge, O Lord, that you have bought us at a great price. We pray, Lord, that we would do these things not because we are guilt-tripped into them, but because our hearts are filled with love for you. May we do so, Lord, as a sacrifice of thanksgiving and not a sacrifice of atonement. We know, Lord God, that that has been offered already by Christ. May we respond with joy, O Lord God. So, Lord, as we travel in this vehicle you have provided on our pilgrimage, may we take advantage of all the means of grace she provides. May we do so with joy in our hearts. Help us again, Lord, not to be simply hearers of the word, but doers of it as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.